Philippians chapter 3. How's everyone doing? Don't lie. Don't give me the, don't do the Christian thing. How's everyone doing? Good? Terrible? Some people are doing terrible, right? That's legit, all right? It's okay to be awful, okay? It's okay to just not feel great. But as we're learning, circumstances can plummet and be terrible, but we still have joy, right? And that's what we're working on. So Philippians chapter 3, penned by the Apostle Paul, but written by God himself. You got to believe that, or it's just another book by just another dude, okay? You got to believe that. People say, who wrote the Bible? You say, God did, men penned it. God wrote it, men penned it. I don't need my phone up here. If you text me, I'm not going to respond for about an hour. We good? We there? I'm, uh, who do, who's in there? Um, I won't even call people out. If you don't know me, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. You don't have to raise your hand. If you uh, haven't been coming or haven't met me before, come up afterwards. Just say hi to myself and Pastor Zach, who's over there. We're a couple of young guys that they give Sunday nights. Uh, we give the pulpit to a couple of young guys on Sunday nights to uh, sharpen us as pastors and, and to... Uh, and to help shepherd the congregation. And so we're going through a study in Philippians, and it's officially summer because I'm rocking flip-flops, right? I'm preaching in flops. And Rob has done it, so he can't get mad at me. Okay, so I'm in flops. So if at some point I eat it, you know I just tripped on my flip-flops. But let's pray because we're off to a bad start. Here we go. So Jesus, just tonight is, um, just as, as Zach and Dane and Chris and myself prayed and Jonathan, we just, um, just pray for the power of simplicity. Um, this book is, uh, is, is really actually quite s- simple in its answer. It, it is truly quite simple, as we'll see. Yet the answer, once understood, is, is profound and deep. But I just pray for the details that they would just sink into our hearts, but that, that overriding message would just grip us, grip our hearts. Um, Jesus, this, this idea of knowing you, and this idea of joy, which is in spite of circumstances, would you just do a work that I cannot do from the pulpit? Holy Spirit, you have to go to work. We trust that you will go to work. We know that you want to go to work on your people. And so, God, be here as you are. Stir among your people. Give them a peace that surpasses all understanding. Despite what we may be going through, as Jesus was looking at the cross, it says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And so for those that are enduring things, bring comfort and consolation. Um, Jesus, become the center even more so tonight than you have been in our lives in the past. And so this we pray for your glory, for your name, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as I mentioned, we're doing a, a, a series called Philippians. If you haven't been, we'll bring you up to speed real fast. If, you, if you're here for the first time, glad. Uh, you're going to roughly hear the same thing everyone has heard the last two weeks, okay? And Paul even says, he's like, look, for me to be tedious and repetitious, that's cool. You need to hear a couple things. Have you ever noticed that about people? You need to hear things a few times. In fact, Zach and I were talking about this, we think in December? We picked December. Okay, in December, what we're going to do is we're going to quiz all of you. Because some of you are going to be like, you guys have said the same thing four weeks in a row. By the way, Zach's going to say the same thing next week. And here's the crazy, you guys said it four times in a row, and by December, this many people will remember. Repetition is okay, right? Most things you want to be good at in life, you do it consistently, don't you? You hear it, you meditate, you think about it, you, you know, it's, it's, you don't like work out once, I think I'm done. Like I've advanced, I'm better than I was 50 minutes ago, that's it. At your job, you continually sharpen yourself, or you just get fired if you're in the private market, right? You just, if you're not getting better, you're getting out. Okay. School, you got to keep advancing. You know, we got to, you got to, you got to rep, you got to have repetition if you want to be good at something. You know, I think there's even a study that says you got to do something a hundred hours before you can even consider yourself to be good at it. You got to be doing something consistently for a hundred hours, right? And so we, you are going to hear the same basic message, but again, Paul goes through it in four different chapters, and there's lots of different nuances, but the same driving message is the same. It is the epistle of joy. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a church that he loved that 11 years prior he helped plant. By all accounts, this is one of the the most joyful, loving churches and he's telling them, go bigger on that. 
even more love, even more joy, even more rejoicing in what Jesus has done. And this is a group of people that actually got it. It's not even like he was writing to a church at Ephesus or Colossae where he's like competing with heretics and false gospels. These guys got it. And there's a little bit of a warning in this chapter because there'll always be people you got to watch out for. But it's the same driving message, this, this message of joy. And so obviously we've, we've titled this The Art of Joy. And if you weren't here, again, we'll do a, a quick recap. If I get my iPad working. And so the author is Paul. And Paul was an apostle. Paul wasn't even born when Jesus left the earth. Okay? He wasn't even born. It wasn't like he met Jesus and, and converted to Christianity. He was born a Jew, as we saw. He grew up in Judaism. He was epic at being Jewish. He was as epic as it got, and he's, as it got, and he's gonna lay that out. He's gonna throw it back in the face of the people that are trying to harm the church. Paul had this radical conversion. He did meet Jesus, but Jesus met him from heaven. He was on the road, dragging women and children from home, if they profess Jesus, on his way to persecute the church even more, he stood over the, the, the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and Jesus cracks open heaven and says, Saul, Saul. And Jesus took it personally, by the way. He's like, why are you persecuting those people? He said, why are you persecuting me? Jesus said from heaven. And Saul went on and Saul became Paul and then he became a giant for the faith plants church, encourages churches, goes around ministering to churches. He goes into cities and it said he either caused a riot or a revival, sometimes both. He'd get kicked out of a city. He'd pick himself back up, bloodied and bruised, and he'd go right back in. And he's writing this little church at Philippi and and they, they love Jesus. They've got a great faith. They supported him. Like they were on mission. They were supporting Paul and he writes back to him. And he's, he's, he constantly drives home this theme of joy. And so Paul, this pastor, during a, a house arrest, he wasn't going to be executed after this house arrest. That would be the next one. But he was facing trial before Caesar at the time and he was under house arrest. So he's like, let's get some letters written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Just God went to work, just secluded him. So stop walking for a while, start writing. So he's penning these letters and he's shooting them off to churches. And so Paul's writing to this church and in chapter one, we, we sort of drew this divide between happiness and joy. You remember that? Happiness and joy, re- they're really confused these days. They're not the same thing. You see, happiness is based on your circumstances. And we're not anti-happiness. A lot of churches turn Philippians to sort of like, don't be happy, have joy. You're like, but I like happy too sometimes, right? Like, I'm pro-happy and I'm pro-joy. Here's the difference. Happiness is circumstantial. Joy is eternal, okay? Happiness is based on your circumstances. Joy is in spite of your circumstances. I likened it to a safety net. When your circumstances plummet and you're falling, joy is what catches you. It doesn't mean you didn't fall. It doesn't mean that you weren't scared on the way down. But it means that you do have a safety net, which is joy. And this is eternal See, Jesus' circumstances weren't going too well when they were about to beat him and pull a beard from his face. Scourge him. Most men died at the scourging. They didn't even make it to the cross. And it says, for the joy that was set before him. What? He endured the cross because his joy was eternal. He saw past all that. And that's the call in the Christian life is to see past all this. You want to live out Jesus in the world? See past this world. Live in spite of your circumstances, not in a response to them. Happiness is good, and that's great when it's there, but when it falls, do you have joy? When your circumstances plummet, are you caught with joy? And so that was chapter one. And again, all these videos are online if you want to go back and take a look at them. Chapter two, last week, we saw the foundation of joy is Jesus. Was anyone surprised by that? If you've been coming, you weren't surprised by that. The foundation of joy is Jesus. You just need to know that. People are like, okay, that's cool. I get that. I'm a Christian, but like, where's the list? Right? We love lists. 
The most read articles on the internet, I'm an online marketing director, the most read articles on the internet are the 10 ways to break up with, 10 ways to change, five things you should not do, eight ways Monday is off, like it's just, that's what people read. 40 ways to date your girlfriend after you've been dating, right? Like 18 ways to re-spark your marriage, like lists. And what do we do? We don't even read it. We just scroll and look at the bulleted, right? Okay, go on a date. Got it. Number two, go on another date. Is this going to be 18, go on a date? Yeah, that's how you date your spouse, right? Go on a date. And we just, we don't even get to the details. We want to see lists. And so you show up to Philippians like, cool, joy, need some of that. What do I do? And here's what we're going to break it all down to, as Zach did. You can put it up. Now, some of you are like, cool, what's next? Where's my list? And see, that's actually the problem. That's not enough for a lot of us. Some of you are let down that that's all the slide has. And you know I love PowerPoints. You know I love ripping through bullet points. That's the only one we got tonight. Or some of you are like, shoot. Should have just waited for the video. Is that enough? It's an illustration and it really is the answer. That's it. Joy. Know Jesus. And we're going to talk about that. I'm going to leave this up the whole time. And that's what you're going to be quizzed on in December. We're going to see how many people remember. So you're like, uh, I think it's serving. Serving. Oh, cool. The Pharisees showed up. Great. It's doing stuff for Jesus. I think it's coming to Sunday nights and signing up for meals ministry. I'm pretty sure that's like what, that's what joy equates to. In December, a lot of you are going to forget that it really is that simple. Now it's profound. The application is profound and as deep as it can take the rest of your life to figure it out. You still won't figure it out until you see Jesus. But the answer is right in front of you. No, Jesus. So you're like, shoot, that's it. I need more. I need a list. That's the answer. And so we saw the foundation of joy as Zach laid out as Christ. And the function of joy is that it gives you the mind of Christ. When the Holy Spirit indwells in you, he actually begins to regenerate your heart. He gives you the mind of Christ. You begin to see people as Jesus sees people. You begin to work as Jesus worked. You begin to be a student as Jesus was a student. Doing all things well, it says in Mark seven thirty seven. You get this function of joy, which is that more and more, every day, closer and closer, you become more like Jesus. Christian means little Christ. Look, in my... In my 20 years of debating and, and trying to identify with different ideologies or political spectrums, this and that, we just, we look for a label, don't we? I am this, I am a conservative, I am a liberal, I am an independent, I am green, I am, I am this, I'm anti that, I'm pro this, I'm that. Everyone wants labels. Christian, little Christ, that's it. That's the only label I want anymore. Little Christ. And so you become a little bit more like Christ every day. It's the function of joy. I got a couple quotes from Zach. I don't know if I, I'll paraphrase them. But it says, nothing we do for God will sustain our joy. Rather, we base our joy on what God has done for us. And that's huge. We don't serve to be loved by Jesus. We serve because Jesus loves us. And nothing we do for God will sustain joy. You need to know that. No amount of volunteering in the children's ministry, no amount of showing up on Sunday nights, no amount of reading your Bible, okay? No amount of just getting prayers out. And we'll we'll go into this a little bit. But no amount of doing things simply to do things for God will sustain your joy. It won't. It will always come down to knowing Jesus. And so we took a look at this fact that that nothing we do for God will sustain our joy. Rather, we base our joy on what God has done for us. Again, it's not our circumstances. It's in spite of the circumstances. And joy comes from oneness with Christ, as Zach so clearly put last week. Oneness with Christ. Knowing Jesus. And so we come up on chapter 3. And it makes sense that he just kicks it off like this. He says, finally... My brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Did you want more than that? We do, don't we? We want lists. We want things. 
Rejoice in what? Okay, I get it, in Jesus, yeah. But, and? Rejoice in the Lord. That's where your joy will be. In Christ, in the Lord. It says, and check this out. He goes, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious. Paul just flat out calls it what it is. He's like, hey, you're, you're, you're a couple chapters into this letter, even though they didn't have chapters back then. He's like, and you're kind of wondering, like, are you seriously going on about the whole, like, know Jesus and have joy thing? He says, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. This is about your safety. This is about your security. This is about that net that catches you when your circumstances throw you. And then he goes into perhaps a slightly unusual for the letter. The, the tone of the letter is just, look, come on, this is like as bubbly as the Bible gets, right? This is. This letter is just one of the most, the, the epistle of joy. Who doesn't want to read that? Okay? But there is still, that does not negate practical warning. Because you don't want people to just be like, look, smile, have a great time, don't worry about anything. You need to worry about some things. You actually do to protect this. And it says this, it says, beware of dogs. He's not talking about animals. Now, who he's going to refer to with these three things is he's referring to Jewish-influenced legalists. Now, I need to qualify this. These aren't outside Jews. These aren't Pharisees. These are Jewish-influenced Christians. These are, these are legalists. Okay, and we'll let God sort out their salvation, but by all accounts, these are people that are coming, that are within the church, that are preaching lists. There's more to it than that. Know Jesus, yes. And once you know Jesus, one, two, three. Or before you can truly know Jesus, one, two, three. Legalists. If you don't know on the, on the sort of the, the religious spectrum, if you will, the theological spectrum, on one side is legalism, on the other side we say liberalism. Okay? You can call one side separatists, the other side culturalists. What I mean by that is, is that the legalists think that the Bible doesn't have enough rules. Liberals think the Bible has way too many rules. And there's Jesus right in the middle. Okay? The separatists say, don't have anything to do with culture. They're wicked. They're not God's people. Don't even talk to them. Go down a block and walk on that street if they're on this street. They literally did this. Have nothing to do with the culture. This is about our faith. We're holy. We're set apart. We're separated from everyone. Separatists. Culturalists. Say, look, dude, keep your faith at home. Right? You've heard that. We hear that in America. You're going to hear it more and more as the years go. Shut up about that in the public square. You don't bring that up in class. You don't bring that up at work. Even if it's on lunch with someone on your own time, keep it at home. Look, just blend in. Separatists, culturalists. And when Jesus was teaching, you know, the only time those people got together to hang out was when they wanted to plot to destroy Jesus. It says the Pharisees and the Herodians plotted together how they could destroy Jesus. Okay, separatists and culturalists. Pharisees wanted nothing to do with culture. The Herodians wanted all faith to be private and just absorb into the Herodian culture. And they get together. And so what Paul is doing is he's speaking to this end of the spectrum. He said, look, there's going to be people that come into the church. They may, they may very well be Christians, but they're going to begin to add to the word of God because they don't think there's enough. They don't think there's enough. Now on this spectrum, I'll tell you this. I have to guard my heart. I will lean this way. I will lean toward legalism not liberalism, in my own heart. Where you lean is between you and Jesus. But you have to constantly be guarding yourself against swinging one way or the other in that political spectrum. Because it's when both those guys are angry at you, you're, you're probably right in the middle with Jesus. And so, so Paul's going to address this, this legalist culture. And he calls them dogs. Now, one of the ways that we know that he's speaking to Jewish-influenced people is that dog was a derogatory term that Jews used for Gentiles. Paul goes gangster on them. He says, you're the dogs. That stings a Jew because that's what they've just been blanketing everyone that wasn't under the covenant of the Old Testament. That's how they blanketed everyone else. You're all dogs, you're dirty. Paul says, beware of dogs and that stings. 
he throws that rock into that pack. Beware of dogs. These are the legalists, the Jewish-influenced legalists in the church. He says, beware of evil workers. They weave evil into it. Laws that separate you from the grace of God. Laws that say you must do X, Y, Z to be loved by God. Or after you realize that you're loved by God, you have to do X, Y, and Z to retain that love of God. He says these people work evil into the church. Beware of those people. He says, beware of the mutilation. He's talking about circumcision. Circumcision was, if you don't know, a sign of the covenant. What's the sign of the new covenant? The sign of the old covenant was circumcision. Old Testament, circumcision. That was what was passed down through families as a sign of God's people. What's the new covenant sign of the covenant? Anyone know? Some of you are like, well, we still do circumcision. What's the sign of the new covenant? Baptism. Yay, right? Baptism, I'm serious. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant. Old covenant, new covenant. And what's going on here is this. I've got a couple guys that are way smarter than me that I can just quote. David Guzik says, this is another harsh reference to the insistence of these Jewish legalists on requiring circumcision for Gentiles who wanted to become Christians. Requiring it. This is all why. He says, this was all done with the idea that someone must first become a Jew before they could become a Christian. Okay? You want to get into God's people, it's through the door of Judaism, not through the door, as Jesus called himself, of Jesus Christ. You got to come through Judaism to get to Christianity. That's an evil work. That's adding to what God says. Commentator Meyer says, they did not deny that Jesus was the Messiah or that his gospel was the power of God unto salvation. They were very likely Christians. But they insisted that the Gentile converts could only come to the fullness of gospel privilege through the law of Moses. Classic legalist. Do you see what happens? Let me read it again. It says, but they insisted that the Gentile, raise your hand if you're a Gentile, non-Jewish. If you're non-Jewish, raise your hand. I'll do this all day long. If you're not Jewish, raise your hand. Okay, right? So Gentiles, he says, he insisted that all of you converts could only come to the fullness of gospel privilege through the law of Moses, through your observation of the Old Testament. It's classic legalism. And it flies in the face of the gospel, which is simply knowing Jesus. And so circumcision, the sign of the old covenant, the Jewish legalists considered themselves to be the only truly circumcised people that were right with God. And so Paul's going to go into this and he says this, he's going to give you a few He's going to give you three instances. It says, Paul declares that he he and his followers were the true circumcision. So he says, look, verse two again, beware of dogs, beware of evildoers, beware of the mutilation. For we, and this is bold. Paul's nothing if not bold. He says, for we are the circumcision. He says, it's now those who are in Christ. Has nothing to do with your past. It has nothing to do with your heritage. It has nothing to do with your ethnicity has nothing to do with how you grew up in the church or didn't grow up in the church. Now it's those who are in Christ, that's it, carte blanche. That's it. Jesus plus nothing equals good math. It's it, just Jesus. Knowing Jesus says, we are the circumcision. And he's gonna give you three indicators. We are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, who worship God in the spirit, not out of obligation or religiosity. Check your heart. When we were worshiping earlier, check your heart. Do you feel like you were in the spirit or you just, you just had to kind of get through it out of religiosity? Some of you don't even show up until after the music. Oh, Zach said that once. He got a bunch of angry emails. You can't call me out. You better believe we can call you out on that. 
show up after the music because I, like, I don't like the music. It's because you're not worshiping in the spirit of God. You're worshiping on religiosity. You show up for the parts you like. You'll take the parts of Jesus you like. Not the worship, not the adoration. Some of you will leave after the message because you don't want to hear the music. Because one of the ways that you'll know you're part of the true circumcision is that you'll worship in the spirit. It won't simply be obligation or religiosity. It says you'll worship in the spirit. Number two, it says you'll rejoice in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, not what you've done, as Zach said, but what he's done. You don't, you, you don't say, look, I don't feel good today, so I'm not going to worship. That's not worship. I, just, I don't feel like worship. It's not worship. It's not the point of worship. It's not the purpose. It's not what drives worship. How you feel, what you've done, what you haven't done is not the thrust behind worship. It's what Jesus has done, which is the thrust of worship. And we've sort of like made it pretty clear up here. You can't really like say, I wonder what they're all about, you know? Sort of know. That's why we do that, okay? Dane's fun to look at. I get it, right? Okay? There's a bigger message beyond that. And so we rejoice in Christ Jesus, not what we've done. And it says this. It says, and we have no confidence in the flesh. We're not confident in the flesh. It doesn't mean we look down on ourselves. Humility isn't thinking poorly of yourself. It's thinking more highly of Jesus. And so we don't have confidence in the flesh. Christians say things like, I just don't think I can do it. And us pastors are like, you can't. <laughs> Tell me I can do it. You can't. It's crazy. You hear this sort of rubbish, and it's, it's theologically rubbish. I know the, the heart of the pastor is great. He's like, God will never give you more than you can handle. Said no Bible book ever. You better believe he's going to give you more than you can handle. How would you know that you need him? I heard one pastor say it like this. Christians do this whole thing. When, when he closes a door, he'll open a window. You've heard that? God closes the door, he'll open a window. I heard, I heard an epic pastor goes, sometimes he closes the door and keeps the window shut because he wants you in the house when it implodes. But that's not the Jesus I know. I just, he just, brokenness, humility, being crushed. I don't want to be crushed. Jesus was crushed. You think you're better than that? Jesus was crushed. God will never give you more than you can handle. You better believe he's going to give you more than you can handle. That's not being confident in the flesh. What you're confident in is that he can handle it. That's where confidence comes in. That's why Paul in other epistles, he boasts in nothing but the work of Jesus. Nothing. And he had a lot to boast about. That's the difference between happiness and joy. Because when you fail, your happiness plummets because you've got confidence in what you can do. When you can fail and have confidence in what Jesus can do, that's when joy catches you. You're going to fail. God's going to give you more than you can handle. I never planned on losing two babies inside my wife's womb. Never planned on it. You're like, How did you handle it? I didn't. What steps did you go through? I pressed into Jesus. I knew that he could handle it. I couldn't. And so for some of you, the reason you struggle with that happiness-joy divide is because your circumstances have plummeted. You've failed. God's given you more than you can handle. And he says, that's so you'll press into me. Tap into someone so great, so powerful. You're going to be blown away that you even tried it alone in the first place. And so Paul just says, no, no. No, no, no. We are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, not out of religiosity or compulsion. We rejoice in Christ Jesus, not our works, and have no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4 says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. He says, look, if anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. This is where Paul lays out his resume. It doesn't go well for anyone else hearing this. He has it. He's got it aced. He says this. 
if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, he's like, look, if you think you're great, check this out. And he's speaking to Jewish-influenced legalists now. Okay? He's going to throw down his resume to the church of Philippi. Say, hey, look, hey, look, if Paul, you guys know Paul, you heard of Paul, like, we know Paul. We definitely know Paul. Dude says he has, he's got the most epic resume. He wrote it to us. He said this, he said, look, he was circumcised on the eighth day, okay, in accordance with Leviticus. Okay, so he's got that. He's in the covenant. He says he's of the stock of Israel. He is a direct descendant. He is God's people. He is part of God's people. Even before the New Testament, he is part of God's people, of the tribe of Benjamin that gave Israel its first king. He says a Hebrew of Hebrews. Unlike other Jews who went on and absorbed into the Greek culture, he's like, I kept it pure. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He he went to the all-star game in Judaism. He is the all-star in spiritual athletics. He is it. He says, I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. And check this out. Concerning the law of Pharisee, he memorized books. He separated himself from culture. He dedicated every waking minute to observing the law. He had books memorized that you don't even know exist in the Bible. He knew it all, schooled by choice. The first part of this list is by birth. The second part of it's by choice. He said he was a Pharisee. He says, concerning zeal, he's like, you guys think, you guys think you're motivated. You know for a fact that I persecuted the church. The Bible says that he breathed threats and murder against the church. The Bible says that he caused havoc among the church. It's why they kept the doors closed for fear that Paul would come in and go oversee another stoning like he did with Stephen. They dropped the garments at his feet and he's like, go ahead, kill the Christian. That's the only one recorded in the Bible. There could have been many. Drag pastors out, have them stoned. Go for it, I'm a Pharisee. It says, concerning, I wasn't just an intellectual opponent, he says, of Christianity. I was there when they shed blood from the church. He says, I got you beat. All the Pharisees are like, oh man, he actually went down to those things. He was there. He says, look, I got it. I'm epic at this. Concerning the righteousness, which is the law, blameless. Who says that? No one. You read the Old Testament? You think you could adhere to that? He says, no one. Look, this is the equivalent of him saying, look, I was born in a Christian family. I wasn't just born in a Christian family. I was born in a pastor's family. Not just a pastor. I was born in a church planting pastor's family. I went to Sunday school every single Sunday my entire life. We took vacations from Monday to Saturday so that we could be back on Sunday. I served in three ministries from the time I was 12. I went to every single prayer service. I went to every single workday. I violated no laws. I did nothing wrong. I never even went 66 miles an hour on the 101. Sinners. And you'll see me fly by you on the motorcycle at 80. Okay? He says, look, I did it. That is it. I have the resume. I am in. I did it all. You don't even compare, he says. But what things were gained to me, verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. And gain in the original Greek is actually plural. He says, look, all these things, take all of that, put it in one bucket and go chuck it in the ocean. And you see what he did? He just laid down a wallop on all the, the legalists in the church. He says, I'm better at being legalist than you and you know it. And here's what I'm going to do with all of that. Chuck it. Need none of it. 
need none of it. I'll count it all loss. I'll write it all off. None of it. All things were gained to me. These I have counted lost for Christ. Verse 8. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence. Some translations may say the surpassing value. Okay? Yet I indeed, all of this, all that religiosity that maybe your friends have held over your head, all that lack of religiosity in your own life or in your friends, he says, take all of that, chuck it all out, consider it just done and over with, it's past. I'll take all of that. He's a, he had that radical conversion. He's like, take all that stuff, throw it out. I'll consider that all loss. He says, for the excellence or the the surpassing value of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's it. Everything comes down to one thing for Paul. The encompassing, driving thrust of joy is about one thing. And as good as service and prayer and Sunday school and church and all the other things and, and, and evangelism and ministry, as good as all of that is, He says it's nothing. The Bible says all your good works are filthy rags before a holy God. And Paul had the best resume and he says, you can have it, burn it if I just know Jesus. Now notice what he didn't say, the knowledge or or knowing about Jesus. I was trying to come up with like a celebrity or a sports icon. I'm from Chicago originally. So I always think of like Michael Jordan. I realize three quarters of you don't probably don't know who he is. Okay. Kobe Bryant, Peyton Manning, President Obama. Do you know of these people? Do any of you know them? Would you say you know them? Everyone knows of President Obama, regardless of how you feel about him. I'd love to have a beer with him someday. I got questions, but I think it'd be fun. Everyone knows about President Obama. Does anyone dare say that you know him? You want to. You want to read articles and feel like you know enough to hate him, maybe. Or you know enough to think that he's, he's the second coming of Jesus. You may know about Barack Obama. You may know about Peyton Manning. You may know about Michael Jordan. You may know about Ryan Reynolds. You may know about some celebrity, but you don't know them. I want us to come to a place in our faith where we stop simply knowing about Jesus. And I fall into this because I want to learn something new about Jesus every day. I want to get deeper and deeper into this. I'm a student of the Bible. Is that going to have to be students of the Bible? But that is all considered lost, but that we just simply know Jesus. And here's the big difference. Some of you, you've been coming to church your whole life, okay? And my heart's racing. This is probably, it's not even in my notes. It's probably not even from me if you know how the Holy Spirit works. Some of you have been coming to church your whole life And you cannot honestly say that you know Jesus. You know about Jesus. You don't know Jesus. You've submitted to the lie that he's simply a name in a historical book. And you want to learn about him like you learn about Abraham Lincoln, like you learn about George Washington. You want to learn about him and say, wow, he did some really cool things. People say, man, I would love to sit down with Abraham Lincoln. What if I told you you could sit down with Jesus Christ? But in your heart, some of you do not believe me. Some of you don't. Some of you right now, tonight, do not believe that you can actually know Jesus. And I would challenge you tonight to restore your understanding of the God you serve Because the personhood of Jesus, the ability to have a personal relationship with God is what separates Christianity from all the fake religions. You want an impersonal God? Go to the mosque down the street. Go to the Jehovah's Witnesses. Go to the Mormon temple. Pick any other religion. If you're truly not going to submit to the idea that you can have a personal relationship with God himself through Jesus, you're just simply a theist. You're just simply a theist. I believe there's a God, but I can't really know him. I'm here to tell you tonight, you 
can not simply know about Jesus, you can know Jesus. Some of you say, how do I do that? Glad you asked, I got a list. Okay, Did you, could you hear that through the mic? I cracked it. Check this out, that was pretty epic. In some of Paul's other writings, he, he's very systematic in how he writes and he really impresses that theology be more than just head knowledge. I think it's a, uh, Colossians that he, he really works this, this idea of your head, your heart, and your hands. I wanna give you three ways because some of you don't believe me and I, I would challenge you in the worship set tonight to meditate on that because that's really the thrust. That's why I've had this thing up there the whole time. Three ways because some of you don't know where to start and I'm glad that some of you right now are like, that's me. I've been hearing a lot about Jesus, but I honestly, if you took a lie detector test and someone said, can you actually know Jesus personally? I think a lot of us would fail. Head, heart, and your hands. You want three ways to get to know Jesus? Head, heart, and your hands. Your head. Read the scriptures. Read the Bible. Jesus is not contained in this book, and we don't worship this book, but we worship the person that this book is about. Jesus is not limited to the Bible. There are things that we don't know about him simply from reading the scriptures, but everything you need to know about him, everything you need to know in terms of salvation is contained in this book. With your head, begin to read the Bible. And just... just just stop with the, I'm going to nod my head at church and, and, and hopefully the pastor believes that I go home and read this. Can we just get real? Can we just be real finally? Like, I'd rather have someone come up to me and be like, bro, I haven't read the Bible in 10 years. People are like, man, you've been studying your whole life. Are you kidding me? You want to know the first time I really studied the Bible? About three and a half years ago when Rob said, you should teach on Wednesday. No, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a pastor's kid. My dad does the teaching. I just sit and I, you think I'd studied the Bible? No. I hadn't read the Bible. People say, how do I read the Bible? I Look, just pull up a commentary from a trusted pastor. I use David Guzik, Santa Barbara. You can just reach out and you can go up there and schedule a meeting with him. All his commentaries, every verse of the Bible, you can sit down with a pastor digitally. Read a section, pray about it, meditate on it, look on it, and then read pastor commentary. That's how I learn. That's how Zach learns, with our heads, with a pastor next to us, by God's grace through the internet even. Sit down digital. I call myself a digital disciple of Pastor Guzik. He doesn't even know. Brett introduced me one time at a wedding, right there. I was sitting there having a good time, trying to be cool, and Brett's like, turns around, hey, I'd like to introduce you to Guzik. I'm like, oh, I love your commentaries. And he's like, Cool. We'd never met. I was like fanboy. I was like, oh, I read you all the time. He's like, <laughs> right? That's a trick for the camera. All right. Sit down, read the Bible. Go through the Gospels. Read about Jesus, but don't end there. That's your head. Take it into your heart. Pray. Pray. And here's the thing you don't have to pray anything fancy. The Bible says, let your words to God be few. I don't know when we, in the church, we came up with 20-minute prayers. Some of you are like, man, I wish I could pray longer. Don't. Bible doesn't say you need to. Let your, let your words to God be few. It says, Holy Spirit, help me understand this. He wrote it. You can sit down with the author. Holy Spirit authored the scripture. I'm reading about Jesus, but I, I don't really get it. I got a, I got a, a commentary. Pray. The Holy Spirit will start to work on it. It's not all at once. Like, oh, here's how, the, here's how the whole Bible makes sense in one night. It's not gonna happen. But with your head, read the scriptures with your heart. Pray to the Holy Spirit. And with your hands, serve the church. You wanna get to know Jesus? You wanna get closer to Jesus? Serve. What did Jesus do his entire ministry? He preached and he teached and he served. You wanna get to know Jesus, not just know about him? Serve the church. Be in fellowship. People can pour into you. You can pour into them. Get your hands dirty. Scrub a toilet, make a meal, not at the same time. Do something, right? Is this legalism? No. This is getting to know Jesus. If, if you spent, we're the married couples. Raise your hand if you're married, right? 
The young kids won't get this. You will when you're married. If you spent as much time with your spouse as you do Jesus, would you have a, would you have a pretty sweet marriage? I got my devotion in the morning. Oh, try that one with your wife. Hey, let's do that 10-minute married thing real quick. What do you got on your plate? Hurry, because we're down to nine. Cool, I'm done for the rest of the day, and I'm out. 10-minute devotion, really? The Bible says pray without ceasing. How do you do that? You're constantly meditating, constantly, even at work, on the motorcycle for me. 95% of what I think about on the motorcycle is Jesus. The other 5% is Chipotle. But 95% of what I think about on the motorcycle is Jesus. He's given me, he's given me, tons on the motorcycle. I don't hear it audibly, but tons as I meditate and pray to him on the motorcycle, even at work. Your head, your heart, and your hands. Study. Talk to him. Pray to him. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal things about him. The Holy Spirit's entire ministry, the culmination of the Holy Spirit's entire ministry is to glorify Jesus. Holy Spirit's not even gonna, he's not gonna go anywhere else but to Jesus at the end of every lesson you have with him. And then serve. Get Dirty with the church. Serve no, Jesus, Paul says, you can take your whole resume, chuck it out the door if I just simply know Jesus. And for some of you, I pray you've been challenged because you've been doing a lot of stuff. You've been talking about Jesus a lot. And Jesus has harsh words. He says, look, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Some people he's gonna say, depart from me. I never what? I never knew you. Jesus says, there's going to be people talking about Jesus. They're going to be talking about me. Not everyone says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. He's like, you talked about me, but you didn't know me. You talked about me, but you never spoke with me. To know Jesus is the gain. He says, but what things are gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also called all things, I count all things lost for the excellence, the surpassing of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. One of my favorite metal bands, Wolves at the Gate, does a song, East to West. Just, you know, the Bible talks about tossing your sins as far as the east is from the west, and they start the song East and West with this passage. I love it, it's so epic. The surpassing knowledge of, of, of knowing Jesus Christ, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Rubbish. Look, he's not even talking about things that are altogether bad. He could very well be talking about a lot of things that are actually good. Gifts from God, common grace to all people, saving grace to Christians. He says, but take all of that, all of that. But if I'd only know Jesus. He can't more clearly say, take everything, it comes down to one thing, that I know my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That I be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but which is through but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. The great theologian Martin Luther called it the wonderful exchange. You may hear it uh, as the great exchange. I actually don't even think he ever used those words, but he did use the words, it's a wonderful exchange. That we would take our righteousness, which is really, really dirty. What's your track record? What's your history? What are your offenses? And then he would trade it for yours. And Zach said this last week and it hit me. He said, Jesus wore your wickedness. Here's the picture. You're on one side of eternity, and there's the other. And you've got a robe. It's got a little spotch on it. It's not even clean to begin with, thanks to Adam and Eve. You come out the gate, you've got a little dirt, and there's a muddy swamp in front of you. And God says, get to the other side. Show yourself blameless. And you wade through life and, and you get older and you go through puberty and you start cussing and you start, just, you, you start being gossipy, you start lying, you start cheating, you start stealing, you start watching porn. You start doing all sorts of stuff. You just get dirtier and dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. You get to that line, if it's on your own accord, you stand before God and say, I wasn't as bad as that guy though. I was basically good. I didn't murder anyone. Or you can walk through 
And when you come before a holy God, Jesus says, hold on. You put your faith in me, I have a new robe for you. Take that off. You go hang it. Jesus puts his robe on you. And you stand before God. It's the wonderful exchange. Some of you just think, I'm going to get through it. I'm going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to know about Jesus. I'm going to get through it. You stand before God and say, look, I knew about him. Jesus says, but I never knew you. I never knew you. You didn't know me. Paul says to be found in him. That's the glory of it. When God judges, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus. That's how you're perfect, though a sinner. That's how you're perfect. The wonderful exchange. You now wear his righteousness because he bore your wickedness. It says, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection. This was tough for me. I had to go sit down with my digital pastor. Say, expound on this for me, Pastor Dave. And he did. It sounds like this. It says, knowing Jesus means knowing the power of new life is imparted to us now, not just when we die. And it sounds like this. The power of his resurrection is an evidencing power. It's the evidence and seal that everything Jesus did and and said was true. The power of his resurrection is a justifying power. It is the receipt and the proof that the sacrifice on the cross was accepted as payment in full. That's why the criminal on the cross next to Jesus was able to be in heaven with him that day. Because Jesus says, what I'm about to do will cover it all. There is not one thing you can add to this equation. And I went home and told my wife about Zach screaming from the pulpit that there's not a single thing we brought to the gospel. All that revs me up. All that revs me up. Why? Because it puts it in his hands, not mine. Are we a part of an active gospel? You better believe it, and I've preached it. But that gospel happens from start to finish, whether we like it or not, whether we screw it up. We cannot screw up the gospel. Jesus has one. He has one. So it's a justifying power. It's the receipt and the proof that the sacrifice of the cross was accepted as a payment in full. This is part of why we worship. The power of his resurrection is a life-giving power. It means that to those who are connected with Jesus Christ receive the same resurrection life. Pastor Rob says, if you're born once, you're gonna die twice. If you're born twice, you're only gonna die once. If you're born simply of the flesh, you're gonna die on earth and you're gonna have a spiritual death. But if you're born of the flesh and then born of the spirit, as Jesus says himself, you must be born again. You'll die but once, and the Bible even refers to that as simply sleep. Because you're going to fall asleep, you're going to wake up, you're going to be in heaven. Last breath on earth, first breath in heaven. If you're born once, you'll die twice. If you're born twice, you'll only die once. says the power of the resurrection is a consoling and comforting power. It promises that our friends and our loved ones who are dead in Christ live with him. And so he says, that I may know him. That's joy for Paul. Some of you know about him and you're struggling with joy because you don't know him. It's not personal for you. It's just simply historic. Jesus comes down and says, get into the boat. We're going to go to the other side. And you get in the storm and we freak out, forgetting that Jesus said, we're going to the other side. That means we make it. It was a promise. Jesus told his disciples, it's a pro- I said, we're going to the other side. It was a promise. Jesus, and Paul says, I identify with that. We're going to, he says, we're going to the other side. Forget my circumstances. It's a promise. We're going to get there. My friends and family that are in him are there. And they don't want to come back. 
They don't want to be back here. They're living it so epic right now. Their faith has become sight. Jesus says, you will get there. That's the eternal joy that separates you from your circumstances when happiness plummets. It catches you that we will get to the other side. Though there will be storms, we will get to the other side. And so the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, look, the Bible promises sufferings for the Christian. Again, if Jesus suffered, I don't know why you think you get out of it. How are you gonna be more like him if you never suffer? I'd like to be more like him, but just sort of like the cool parts. I'd like to identify with that and really show the world how epic he is. What about the suffering? No, he did a really good job at that. I don't think I could ever come close to it. So let's just leave that to him. It's not how it works. It's not how it works. He never said it would be free from suffering. You want to get to know Jesus? Press into him when you're suffering. Let him be the one that comforts you when you lose a baby. Let him be the one that comforts you when you lose a job. Let Let him be the one that comforts you when you get divorced or fight with your spouse or go back to your old sin or go back to your addiction. The fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And those words were particular for Paul. He was, he knew if not this time, soon he would be martyred. And check this out. There's a lot more. We're gonna kind of rip through it. But it says, verse 12, it says, not that I've already attained. He says, look, in the spiritual world, there's no perfection. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. I've said this before, I'm gonna say it again. God does not have a goal for your life. He simply has a process. There's no goal that you need to attain so that he can say, oh, thank goodness. I didn't know if you were gonna get there. Now I can use you. He's using you in the process. There is no such thing as spiritual perfection. Paul knew it. Paul began his ministry as a sinner and he ended his ministry as what? Chief of sinners. Because he's saying, because was he sinning more? No, he was getting closer to someone who was sinless. And every sin, though they probably were reducing and getting less grievous, we're looking more grievous as you get closer to perfection. See, Paul was knowing Jesus. When you get even that much closer, he knew Jesus. Every little sin was a major offense. It was cosmic treason to Paul. Taking the Lord's name in vain probably felt worse than when he stoned Stephen because he was so close to Jesus at that point. Not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on. And that's the response to all this. That's the, the response to, to a struggling faith, to dying circumstances. The proper response is an active faith. Paul didn't say, I'm along for the ride. Paul didn't say, I'm, I'm getting along in my faith. He said, I'm pressing on in my faith. And he presses in to Jesus when times fall. And that's where he finds his joy. And it's not just a bumper sticker. Paul lived it. Some of you hear it like a bumper sticker because you haven't truly submitted to it. And I didn't intend for the sermon to be so much pressing. But we have to know Jesus. It's not enough to simply know about him. And I want to encourage you that you can know Jesus. This is the motivation, the purpose, the drive in Paul's ministry is that he's pressing on. And check this out. He says that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus had also laid a hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have, to have, to have apprehended But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things that are ahead. Look, the past can paralyze you in generally one of two ways. It's because of all the junk you did and it paralyzes you and you don't think you can move forward because you've got so much junk in your past. And and one of the things I'll press upon some some of the older folks, you know, it's a tough thing for a pastor to say, how do you really challenge, you know, people that are later in life, more seasoned, when they got a, they're a lot more mature. I'll tell you one thing that, it, w- though the young people a lot of times look back on their past and they're paralyzed because there's so much dirt in it, and it's disgusting. I'll tell you what happens a lot of times is a lot of the people that get older and more seasoned, they worship the past. They want to go back to the past. They think everything was better back then. The world's going to hell now. It's always been going to hell. I don't know if you know that. And they look back at this generation, I can't believe it, back in the 50s. It was disgusting in the 50s too. You just didn't know about it. 
And so some people look back in horror at the past. Some of you look back in glory at the past. Both paralyzes you today. I can't do anything with this world. It's awesome back then. No, it wasn't. I've read about the 60s. Okay? It's not awesome. Thanks for all the STDs, right? Awesome, great. Okay? So whether you've got a disgusting past like Paul did, whether you glorify the past, you think it was awesome, it paralyzes. Paul says, no, that way. That way. Stop using your past as an excuse. One way or the other. Let all that go. Move forward, he says. I press on toward the goal for the prize, the upward call for God in Christ Jesus. What if I told you you had to quit your job today, work at McDonald's for five years, and I'd give you $500 million? Would you do it? Some of you would go work at McDonald's, which I believe is Satan incarnate on earth. You would work at McDonald's for minimum wage for five years for $500 million, and some of you are not willing to work in the church, though heaven awaits. Though heaven awaits. See, because we, we think $500 million is an awesome prize. And we're like, what about heaven? Yeah, it'll probably be fine. Right? What happens to rich people? They get freaking depressed. Hollywood can't keep marriages together. They can marry anyone on the planet, and they're all hot. And they still can't keep marriages together. I just started listening to country. Blake Sheldon, Mariah Lambert, or whatever her name is. Done. Four years they tried. They can marry anyone. Some of you are still shocked I started listening to country. I know. Yes, I hated it my whole life. Something about it moves me these days. I don't know what it is. Pastor Darren Patrick said that the older he gets, the more country makes sense. It'll never make total sense, but it makes more sense. Some of you would do, you're so excited, $500 million. I say heaven, you're like, eh. we've lost our eye for the prize. Paul knows what that prize looks like. And he's moving forward. It says, therefore, verse 15, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. And he says this, I'll wrap it up with this. We'll make it quick. Verse 17, says, brethren, join in following my example. It's okay to follow people that are mature in faith and are getting closer to Jesus. It's okay to learn from people that truly can say, I know Jesus. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction. The church is going to let you down. Whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame who set their mind on earthly things, $500 million. For our citizenship is in heaven. Oh, this is, this is big implications for joy. From which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may can be conformed to his glorious body. Jesus says, you will get a body like mine, and it will be physical in its resemblance. The body that Jesus had on earth after he resurrected from the grave is the type of body that we will have in heaven forever. We don't go off and get a spirit cloud and a harp. We get a body. He says, I'll give you a glorious body. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more aches. There'll be no more crying, no more tears, no more suffering. Jesus says, that is the other side of the lake and we're going there. According to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved, I'm going into chapter four. It's a weird break. Therefore, my beloved and long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Let me say one thing about the citizenship. For most of us here, our primary citizenship is in America. For most people here, for most of my life, myself included, our primary citizenship has been in America. We have to flip that paradigm tonight. Your citizenship in America is secondary. Your citizenship is first and foremost in heaven. This is why some of you were so devastated 
by the gay marriage decision. Because it was an affront to your primary citizenship as an American. It didn't change a thing about the gospel. And yet the church freaked out. Because we see ourselves as an American church first, not a heavenly church that happens to be renting space in America. If you lived in America your whole life and for one year you went and lived in another country, let's say you went to Scotland, it was going to be a one-year term, your whole life in America. You went over there and they, and they let's say we're 10 years ago and they passed gay marriage. One year in Wales. Would you have taken it the same way we took it in America? You said, I'm here for a year. Look, I mourn. I want to I minister to people. I want to be there for people. Doesn't mean I sacrifice my doctrine, theology, God's word, any of that. But I think most of us would have been like, it's your country. I'm going back to America. I'm just here for a year. Look, that dash between your birth date and your death date, that's what it's going to feel like in heaven. That's what it's going to feel like in heaven. I need to flip that paradigm. We are first and foremost heavenly citizens who happen to be on earth for a little bit. You are not a body with a soul. You are a soul that happens to have a body. The joy that Paul talks about is because he's not leaving his primary citizenship. He's going to his primary citizenship. He's going to be serving his king. He's going to press on here while he's here. He's going to minister to people, love on people, serve churches, plant churches, expand the kingdom until Jesus gets back. But his joy comes from the security of knowing that Jesus is already ruling and reigning. And so may we separate that in our hearts. That knowing about Jesus is not simply enough. It's simply not enough. As we go into a time of worship, I pray that every heart here prays to the Holy Spirit himself. Says, Holy Spirit, I want to know Jesus. Holy Spirit, I want to know Jesus. Holy Spirit, I know that the reason I struggle with joy is because I don't truly trust or believe that I can know Jesus. Tonight, God says that changes. Amen? Let's pray and go into worship. Jesus, I can't say it enough, and it, it, it convicts my own heart. There's times where I'm just simply content learning about you. I'm content preaching about you. I'm content evangelizing about you. But I struggle to be with you. Sometimes I don't believe that a God so big could be so personal. And as you oppressed upon my heart, even in the midst of a sermon, I, press, I pray that you press on the hearts of your people right now. That you would do what only you can do, Holy Spirit, which is to tap those on the shoulder that have been simply knowing about you. And so this talk of joy is foreign to them because they don't know you. Holy Spirit, draw your people to you. Draw your children so that they can see that you are a personal God apart from all the rubbish that the world has to offer in terms of false religions. Jesus, you're a person. You're currently on a throne. You're preparing your return. We will see you if found in you we will see you face to face. Our faith will become sight. We have a joy as we step into that boat that though there will be winds and waves, we will get to the other side because you said so. Jesus, give that comfort to people. Give that joy to people as we look forward to seeing you. In Jesus' name, amen.